Proem Pages from a Prehistoric Record An archaic manuscript, a collection of palm leaves made impermeable to water, fire, and air, by some specific and unknown process, is before the writer's eye. On the first page is an immaculate white disc within a dull black background. On the following page, the same disc, but with a central point. The first, the student knows, represents cosmos in eternity. Before the reawakening of still-slumbering energy, the emanation of the world in later systems. The point in the Hethertu Immaculate Disc, space and eternity in Praleya, denotes the dawn of differentiation. It is the point in the mundane egg, the germ within it, which will become the universe, the all, the boundless, periodical cosmos, a germ which is latent and active, periodically and by turns. The one circle is divine unity, from which all proceeds, whither all returns. Its circumference, a forcibly limited symbol, in view of the limitation of the human mind, indicates the abstract, ever-incognizable presence and its plane, the universal soul, although the two are one. Only the face of the disc being white and the surrounding ground black clearly shows that its plane is the sole knowledge, dim and hazy though it still is, that is attainable by man. It is on this plane that the manventaric manifestations begin. For it is in this soul that slumbers, during the praleya, the divine thought, wherein lies concealed the plan of every future cosmogony and theogony. It is the one life, eternal, invisible, yet omnipresent, without beginning or end, yet periodical in its regular manifestations, between which periods reigns the dark mystery of non-being, unconscious yet absolute consciousness, unrealizable yet the one self-existing reality, truly a chaos to the sense, a cosmos to the reason. Its one absolute attribute, which is itself eternal, ceaseless motion, is called in esoteric parlance the great breath, which is the perpetual motion of the universe in the sense of limitless, ever-present space. That which is motionless cannot be divine, but then there is nothing in fact and reality absolutely motionless within the universal soul. Almost five centuries BC, Lucipus, the instructor of Democritus, maintained that space was eternally filled with atoms actuated by a ceaseless motion, which, in due course of time, as they aggregated, generated rotary motion through mutual collisions producing lateral movements. Epicurus and Lucretius taught the same doctrine, adding, however, to the lateral motion of the atoms the idea of affinity, an occult teaching. From the beginning of man's inheritance, from the first appearance of the architects of the globe he lives on, the unrevealed deity was recognized and considered under its only philosophical aspect, universal motion the thrill of the creative breath in nature. Occultism sums up the one existence thus. Deity is an arcane, living, or moving, fire, and the eternal witnesses to this unseen presence are light, heat, moisture. 
This trinity, including and being the cause of every phenomenon in nature, intracosmic motion is eternal and ceaseless. Cosmic motion, the visible, or that which is subject to perception, is finite and periodical. As an eternal abstraction, it is ever-present. As a manifestation, it is finite both in the coming direction and the opposite, the two being the alpha and omega of successive reconstructions. Cosmos, the noumenon, has not to do with the causal relations of the phenomenal world. It is only with reference to the intracosmic soul. The ideal cosmos and the immutable divine thought that we may say, it never had a beginning nor will it have an end. With regard to its body or cosmic organization, though it cannot be said that it had a first or will ever have a last construction, yet at each new Manvantara, its organization may be regarded as the first and the last of its kind, as it evolves every time on a higher plane. A few years ago only, it was stated that the esoteric doctrine like Buddhism or Brahmanism, and even Kabbalism, teaches that the one infinite and unknown essence exists from all eternity, and in regular and harmonious successions is either passive or active. In the poetical phraseology of Manu, these conditions are called the days and the nights of Brahma. The latter is either awake or asleep. The Svabhakitas, or philosophers of the oldest school of Buddhism, which still exists in Nepal, speculate only upon the active condition of this essence, which they call Svabhavat, and deem it foolish to theorize upon the abstract and unknowable power in its passive condition. Hence they are called atheists by both Christian theologians and modern scientists, for neither of the two are able to understand the profound logic of their philosophy. The former will allow no other god than the personified secondary powers which have worked out the invisible universe, and which becomes with them the anthropomorphic god of the Christians, the male Jehovah, roaring amid thunder and lightning. In its turn, rationalistic science greets the Buddhists and the Svabhavikas as the positivists of the archaic ages. If we take a one-sided view of the philosophy of the latter, our materialists may be right in their own way. The Buddhists maintain that there is no creator but an infinitude of creative powers, which collectively form the eternal substance, the essence of which is inscrutable, hence not a subject for speculation for any true philosopher. Socrates invariably refused to argue upon the mystery of universal being, Yet no one would ever have thought of charging him with atheism, except those who were bent upon his destruction. Upon inaugurating an active period, says the secret doctrine, an expansion of this divine essence from without inwardly and from within outwardly occurs in obedience to eternal and immutable law, and the phenomenal or visible universe is the ultimate result of the long chain of cosmical forces thus progressively set in motion. In like manner, when the passive condition is resumed, a contraction of the divine essence take place, and the previous work of creation is gradually and progressively undone. The visible universe becomes disintegrated, its material dispersed, 
and darkness, solitary and alone, broods once more over the face of the deep. To use a metaphor from the secret books which will convey the idea still more clearly, an outbreathing of the unknown essence produces the world, and an inhalation causes it to disappear. This process has been going on from all eternity, and our present universe is but one of an infinite series, which had no beginning and will have no end. This passage will be explained as far as it is possible in the present work, though it contains nothing new to the Orientalist, as it now stands, its esoteric interpretation may contain a good deal which has hitherto remained entirely unknown to the Western student. The first illustration is a plain disc. The second in the archaic symbol shows a disc with a point in it. The first differentiation and the periodical manifestations of the ever-eternal nature, sexless and infinite, a deity in that, or potential space within abstract space. In its third stage, the point is transformed into a diameter. It now symbolizes a divine immaculate mother nature within the all-embracing absolute infinitude. When the horizontal diameter is crossed by a vertical one, it becomes the mundane cross. Humanity has reached its third root race. It is the sign for the origin of human life. When the circumference disappears and leaves only the cross, it is a sign that the fall of man into matter is accomplished and the fourth race begins. The cross within a circle symbolizes pure pantheism. When the cross is left uninscribed, it becomes phallic. It had the same and yet other meanings as a Tao inscribed within a circle, or as Thor's hammer, the so-called Jaina cross, or swastika, within a circle. By the third symbol, the circle divided in two by a horizontal diameter, was meant the first manifestation of creative nature, still passive because feminine. The first shadowy perception of man connected with procreation is feminine because man knows his mother more than his father. Hence, female deities were more sacred than male. Nature is therefore feminine, and to a degree, objective and tangible, and the spirit principle which fructifies it is concealed. By adding to the horizontal line in the circle, a perpendicular, the tau was formed, T, the oldest form of the letter. It was the glyph of the third root race, to the day of its symbolical fall, i.e. when the separation of sexes by natural evolution took place, when the figure became a vertical line or sexless life modified or separate, a double glyph or symbol. Within the sub-races of our fifth race, it became in symbology the sacra, and in Hebrew, nakapva, of the first formed races, then it changed into the Egyptian emblem of life, the Ankh, and still later, into the sign of Venus. Then comes the Svastika, Thor's hammer, now the Hermetic cross, entirely separated from its circle, thus becoming purely phallic. The esoteric symbol of Kali Yuga is the five-pointed star reversed, with its two points, horns, turned heavenward. Thus, the sign of human sorcery, a position every occultist will recognize as one of the left hand and used in ceremonial magic. 
It is hoped that during the perusal of this work, the erroneous ideas of the public in general with regard to pantheism will be modified. It is wrong and unjust to regard the Buddhists and Advaitin occultists as atheists. If not all of them philosophers, they are at any rate all logicians, their objections and arguments being based on strict reasoning. Indeed, if the Parabrahman of the Hindus may be taken as a representative of the hidden and nameless deities of other nations, this absolute principle will be found to be the prototype from which all the others were copied. Parabrahman is not God because it is not a God. It is that which is supreme and not supreme, Paravara. It is supreme as cause, not supreme as effect. Parabrahman is simply a secondless reality, the all-inclusive cosmos, or rather the infinite cosmic space, in the highest spiritual sense, of course. Brahman, neuter, being the unchanging, pure, free, undecaying supreme root, the one true existence, Paramarthika, and the absolute Chit and Chaitanya, intelligence, consciousness, cannot be a cognizer, for that can have no subject of cognition. Can the flame be called the essence of fire? The essence is the life and light of the universe. The visible fire and flame are destruction, death, and evil. Fire and flame destroy the body of an arat. Their essence makes him immortal. The knowledge of the absolute spirit, like the effulgence of the sun or like heat and fire, is not else than the absolute essence itself, says Shankracharya. It is the spirit of the fire, not fire itself. Therefore, the attributes of the latter, heat or flame, are not the attributes of the spirit, but of that of which that spirit is the unconscious cause. Is not the above sentence the true keynote of later Rosicrucian philosophy? Parabrahman is, in short, the collective aggregate of cosmos in its infinity and eternity. The that and this to which distribute aggregates cannot be applied. In the beginning, this was the self, one only, and the great Shankaracharya explains that this refers to the universe, jagat. The words in the beginning, meaning before the reproduction of the phenomenal universe. Therefore, when the pantheists echo the Upanishads, which state as in the secret doctrine, that this cannot create, they do not deny a creator, or rather a collective aggregate of creators, they simply refuse, very logically, to attribute creation, and especially formation, something finite to an infinite principle. With them, Parabrahman is a passive because an absolute cause, the unconditioned mukta. It is only limited omniscience and omnipotence that are refused to the latter, because these are still attributes reflected in man's perceptions, and because Parabrahman, being the supreme all, the ever-invisible spirit and soul of nature, changeless and eternal, can have no attributes, the term absoluteness very naturally precluded any idea of the finite or conditioned from being connected with it. 
And if the Vedantins postulate attributes as belonging simply to its emanation, calling it Ishvara plus Maya and Avidya, agnosticism and nescience rather than ignorance, it is difficult to find any atheism in this conception, since there can be neither two infinites nor two absolutes in a universe supposed to be boundless. This self-existence can hardly be conceived as a creating personally. To the senses and in the perceptions of finite beings, that is non-being, in the sense that it is the one beingness, for in this all lies concealed its co-eternal and covil emanation or inherent radiation, which becoming periodically Brahma, the male-female potency, expands itself into the manifested universe. Narayana, moving on the abstract waters of space, is transformed into the waters of concrete substance moved by him, who now becomes the manifested word or logos. The orthodox Brahmins, those who rise the most against the pantheists and Advaitins, Calling them atheists are forced, if Manu has any authority in this matter, to accept the death of Brahma, the creator, at the expiration of every age of this deity, a hundred divine years, a period which, in our years, requires fifteen figures to express. Yet no philosopher among them will view this death in any other sense than as a temporary disappearance from the manifested plane of existence or as a periodical rest. The occultists are, therefore, at one with the Advaita Vedantin philosophers as to the above tenant. They show, on philosophical grounds, the impossibility of accepting the idea of the absolute all, creating or even evolving the golden egg, into which it is said to enter in order to transform itself into Brahma, the creator, who later expands himself into the gods and all the visible universe. They say that absolute unity cannot pass to infinity, for infinity presupposes the limitless extension of something, and the duration of that something, and the one all, like space, which is its only mental and physical representation on this earth, or our plane of existence, is neither an object of nor an object to perception. If one could suppose the eternal infinite all, the omnipresent unity, instead of being in eternity, becoming through periodical manifestation a manifold universe or a multiple personality, that unity would cease to be one. Locke's idea that pure space is capable of neither resistance nor motion is incorrect. Space is neither a limitless void nor a conditioned fullness, but both. Being on the plane of absolute abstraction, the ever-cognizable deity, which is void only to finite minds, and on that of Mayavik perception, the plenum, the absolute container of all that is, whether manifested or unmanifested, it is, therefore, that absolute all. There is no difference between the Christian apostles, in him we live and move and have our being, and the Hindu rishis, the universe lives in, proceeds from, and will return to Brahma. For Brahma, neuter, the unmanifested, is that universe in abscondido, 
And Brahma, the manifested, is the Logos made female male and the symbolical orthodox dogmas, the god of the apostle initiate, and of the Rishi being both the unseen and the visible space. Space is called, in esoteric symbolism, the seven-skinned eternal mother-father. From its undifferentiated to its differentiated surface, it is composed of seven layers. What is that which was, is, and will be, whether there is a universe or not, whether there be gods or none? asks the esoteric Senzar Catechism, and the answer made is space. It is not the one unknown ever-present God in nature, or nature in abscondido, that is rejected, but the God of human dogma, and his humanized word. Man, in his infinite conceit and inherent pride and vanity, shaped it himself with his sacrilegious handout of the material he found in his own small brain fabric, and forced it upon his fellows as a direct revelation from the one unrevealed space. The occultists accepts revelation as coming from divine yet still finite beings, the manifested lives, never from the unmanifestable one, life. From those entities called primordial man, Dhyani Buddhas, or Dhyan, or Dhyan Chohans, the Rishi, Prajapti of the Hindus, the Elohim, or the sons of God of the Jews, the planetary spirits of all nations who have become gods for men. The occultists also regard the Adi Shakti, the direct emanation of Mula Prakriti, the eternal root of Vat, and the female aspect of the creative cause, Brahma, under Akashic form on the universal soul, as philosophically a Maya and cause of human Maya. But this view does not prevent him from believing in its existence so long as it lasts, to wit, for one Mahanvantara, nor from applying Akasha to the radiation of Mula Prakriti. To practical purposes, connected as this world soul is with all natural phenomena known or unknown to science. The oldest religions of the world, exoterically, for the esoteric root or foundation is one, are the Indian, the Mazdean, and the Egyptian. Next comes Chaldean, the outcome of these now entirely lost to the new world. Except in its disfigured Sabianism, as at presents rendered by the archaeologists. Then, passing over a number of religions that will be mentioned later, comes the Jewish, esoterically following in the line of Babylonian magism, as in the Kabbalah, exoterically a collection of allegorical legends, as in Genesis and the Pentateuch, read by the light of the Zohar, the four initial chapters of Genesis, are the fragment of a highly philosophical page in the world's cosmogony. Left in their symbolic disguise, they are a nursery tale, an ugly thorn in the side of science and logic, an evident effect of karma. To let them serve as a prologue to Christianity was a cruel revenge on the part of the rabbis, who knew better what their Pentateuch meant. It was a silent protest against the spoilation, and the Jews have now certainly the better of their traditional persecutors. The above-named exoteric creeds will be explained in the light of the universal doctrine as we proceed. 
The occult catechism contains the following questions and answers. What is it that ever is? Space, the eternal, Anupadaka, parentless. What is it that ever was? The germ in the root. What is it that is ever coming and going? The great breath. Then, there are three eternals? No, the three are one. That which ever is, is one. That which ever was, is one. That which is ever being and becoming is also one, and this is space. Explain, O Lano, disciple. The one is an unbroken circle, ring, with no circumference, for it is nowhere and everywhere. The one is the boundless plane of the circle, manifesting a diameter only during the manvataric periods. The one is the indivisible point found nowhere, perceived everywhere during those periods. It is the vertical and the horizontal, the father and the mother, the summit and the base of the father, the two extremities of the mother, reaching in reality nowhere, for the one is the ring and also the rings that are within that ring, light in darkness and darkness in light, the breath which is eternal. It proceeds from without inwardly, when it is everywhere, and from within outwardly, when it is nowhere, i.e. maya, one of the centers. It expands and contracts, exhalation and inhalation. When it expands, the mother diffuses and scatters. When it contracts, the mother draws back and ingathers. This produces the periods of the evolution and dissolution. Manvantara and Pralaya. The germ is invisible and fiery. The root, the plane of the circle, is cool. But during evolution and Manvantara, her garment is cold and radiant. Hot breath is the father who devours the progeny of the many-faced element. Heterogeneous. And leaves the single-faced ones homogeneous. Cool breath is the mother who conceives, forms, brings forth, and receives them back into her bosom, to reform them at the dawn of the day of Brahma, or Manvantara. For a clearer understanding on the part of the general reader, it must be stated that occult science recognizes seven cosmic elements, four entirely physical, and the fifth, ether, semi-material, which will become visible in the air towards the end of the fourth round, to reign supreme over the others during the whole of the fifth. The remaining two are as yet absolutely beyond the range of human perception. They will, however, appear as presentiments during the sixth and seventh races of this round, and will be fully known in the sixth and seventh rounds respectively. These seven elements, with their numberless sub-elements, which are far more numerous than those known to science, are simply conditional modifications and aspects of the one and only element. This latter is not ether, not even akasha, but the source of these. The fifth element, now quite freely advocated by science, is not the ether hypothesized by Sir Isaac Newton, although he calls it by that name, having probably associated it in his mind with Aether, the father-mother of antiquity. As Newton intuitionally says, nature is a perpetual circulatory worker, generating fluids out of solids, fixed things out of volatile, and volatile out of fixed, 
subtile out of gross and gross out of subtile. Thus, perhaps, may all things be originated from ether. The reader has to bear in mind that the stanzas treat only of the cosmogony of our own planetary system and of what is visible around it after a solar pralaya. The secret teachings with regard to the evolution of the universal cosmos cannot be given, since they could not be understood by even the highest minds in this age. And there seem to be very few initiates, even among the greatest who are allowed to speculate upon this subject. Moreover, the teachers say openly that not even the highest Dayani Chohans have ever penetrated the mysteries beyond those boundaries that separate the milliards of solar systems from the central sun, as it is called. Therefore, that which is given relates only to our visible cosmos after a night of Brahma. Before the reader proceeds to the consideration of the stanzas from the Book of Dizan, which form the basis of the present work, it is absolutely necessary that he should be made acquainted with the few fundamental conceptions which underlie and pervade the entire system of thought to which his attention is invited. These basic ideas are few in number, but on their clear apprehension depends the understanding of all that follows. Therefore, no apology is required for asking the reader to make himself familiar with these first, before entering on the perusal of the work itself. The secret doctrine, then, establishes three fundamental propositions. 1. An omnipresent, eternal, boundless, and immutable principle on which all speculation is impossible, since it transcends the power of human conception and can only be dwarfed by any human expression or similitude. It is beyond the range and reach of thought, in the words of the Mandukya, unthinkable and unspeakable. To render these ideas clearer to the general reader, let him set out with the postulate that there is one absolute reality which antecedes all manifested conditioned being. This infinite and eternal cause, dimly formulated in the unconscious and unknowable of current European philosophy, is the rootless root of all that was, is, or ever shall be. It is, of course, devoid of all attributes and is essentially without any relation to manifested finite being. It is beness rather than being, sat in Sanskrit, and is beyond all thought or speculation. This beness is symbolized in the secret doctrine under two aspects. On the one hand, absolute abstract space, representing bare subjectivity, the one thing which no human mind can either exclude from any conception or conceive of by itself. On the other, absolute abstract motion representing unconditioned consciousness. Even our Western thinkers have shown that consciousness is inconceivable to us apart from change, and motion best symbolizes change, its essential characteristic. This latter aspect of the one reality is also symbolized by the term the great breath, a symbol sufficiently graphic to need no further elucidation. Thus then, the first fundamental axiom of the secret doctrine is this metaphysical one absolute Venus, symbolized by finite intelligence as the theological trinity. It may, however, assist the student if a few further explanations are here given. 
Herbert Spencer has of late so far modified his agnosticism as to assert that the nature of the first cause, which the occultist more logically derives from the causeless cause, the eternal, and the unknowable, may be essentially the same as that of the consciousness which wells up within us. In short, that the impersonal reality pervading the cosmos is the pure noumenon of thought. This advance on his part brings him very near to the esoteric and Vedantin tenet. Parabrahman, the one reality, the absolute, is the field of absolute consciousness, i.e. that essence which is out of all relation to conditioned existence, and of which conscious existence is a conditioned symbol. But once that we pass in thought from this to us, absolute negation, Duality supervenes in the contrast of spirit, or consciousness, and matter, subject and object. Spirit, or consciousness, and matter are, however, to be regarded not as independent realities, but as the two symbols or aspects of the absolute parabrahman, which constitute the basis of conditioned being, whether subjective or objective. Considering this metaphysical triad as the root from which proceeds all manifestation, the great breath assumes the character of precosmic ideation. It is the fons et orego of force and of all individual consciousness and supplies the guiding intelligence in the vast scheme of cosmic evolution. On the other hand, precosmic root substance is that aspect of the absolute which underlies all the objective planes of nature. Just as precosmic ideation is the root of all individual consciousness, so precosmic substance is the substratum of matter in the various grades of its differentiation. Hence, it will be apparent that the contrast of these two aspects of the absolute is essential to the existence of the manifested universe. Apart from cosmic substance, cosmic ideation could not manifest as individual consciousness, since it is only through a vehicle of matter that consciousness wells up as I am, I, a physical basis being necessary to focus a ray of the universal mind at a certain stage of complexity. Again, apart from cosmic ideation, Cosmic substance would remain an empty abstraction, and no emergence of consciousness could ensue. The manifested universe, therefore, is pervaded by duality, which is, as it were, the very essence of its existence as manifestation. But just as the opposite poles of subject and object, spirit and matter, are but aspects of the one unity in which they are synthesized, so, in the manifested universe, there is that which links spirit to matter, subject to object. This something, as present unknown to Western speculation, is called, by occultists, fohat. It is the bridge by which the ideas existing in the divine thought are impressed on cosmic substance as the laws of nature. Fohat is thus the dynamic energy of cosmic ideation. Or, regarded from the other side, it is the intelligent medium, the guiding power of all manifestation, the thought, divine, transmitted and made manifest through the Diane Chohans, 
the architects of the visible world. Thus, from spirit or cosmic ideation comes our consciousness, from cosmic substance, the several vehicles in which that consciousness is individualized and attains to self or reflective consciousness, while Fohat in his various manifestations is the mysterious link between mind and matter, the animating principle electrifying every atom into life. The following summary will afford a clearer idea to the reader. 1. Absoluteness The Parabrahman of the Vedantins, or the One Reality, Sat, which is, as Hegel says, both absolute being and non-being. 2. The First Logos, the impersonal and, in philosophy, unmanifested Logos, the precursor of the manifested. This is the first cause, the unconscious of European pantheists. Number three, the second logos, spirit matter, life, the spirit of the universe, Purusha, and Prakriti. Number four, the third logos, cosmic ideation, Mahat, or intelligence, the universal world soul the cosmic noumenon of matter, the basis of the intelligent operations in and of nature, also called the Mahabuddhi. The one reality, its dual aspects in the conditioned universe. Further, the secret doctrine affirms, number two, the eternity of the universe as a boundless plane periodically the playground of numberless universes incessantly manifesting and disappearing, called the manifesting stars and the sparks of eternity. The eternity of the pilgrim is like a wink of the eye of self-existence, as the Book of Dzian puts it. The appearance and disappearance of worlds is like a regular tidal ebb of flux and reflux. The second assertion of the secret doctrine is the absolute universality of that law of periodicity, of flux and reflux, ebb and flow, which physical science has observed and recorded in all departments of nature. An alteration such as that of day and night, life and death, sleeping and waking, is a fact so common, so perfectly universal and without exception, that it is easy to comprehend that in it, we see one of the absolutely fundamental laws of the universe. Moreover, the secret doctrine teaches, number three, the fundamental identity of all souls within the universal oversoul, the latter being itself an aspect of the unknown root, and the obligatory pilgrimage of every soul, a spark of the former, through the cycle of incarnation or necessity, in accordance with cyclic and karmic law during the whole term. In other words, no purely spiritual booty, divine soul, can have an independent conscious existence before the spark which issued from the pure essence of the universal six principle, or the oversoul, has A, passed through every elemental form on the phenomenal world of Manvatara, and B, acquired individuality, first by natural impulse and then by self-induced and self-devised efforts, checked by its karma, thus ascending through all the degrees of intelligence from the lowest 
to the highest manas, from mineral and plant up to the holiest archangel, Dhyani Buddha. The pivotal doctrine of the esoteric philosophy admits no privileges or special gifts in man, save those won by his own ego through personal effort and merit throughout a long series of metempsychosis and reincarnations. This is why the Hindus say that the universe is Brahman, and Brahma, for Brahman, is in every atom of the universe, the six principles in nature being all the outcome, the variously differentiated aspects, of the seventh and one, the only reality in the universe, whether cosmic or microcosmic, and also why the permutations, psychic, spiritual, and physical, on the plane of manifestation and form, of the sixth, Brahma, the vehicle of Brahman, are viewed by metaphysical antiphrasis as elusive and mayavic. For although the root of every atom individually and of every form collectively is that seventh principle or the one reality, still in its manifested and phenomenal and temporary appearance, it is no better than an evanescent illusion of our senses. In its absoluteness, the one principle under its two aspects, para-Brahman and mula-prakriti, is sexless, unconditional, and eternal. Its periodical manvataric emanation, or primal radiation, is also one, androgynous and phenomenally finite. When the radiation radiates in its turn, all its radiations are also androgynous to become male and female principles in their lower aspects. After Palaya, whether the great or minor Palaya, the latter leaving the words in status quo, the first that reawakes to active life is the plastic Akasha, father-mother, the spirit and soul of ether, or the plane of the circle. Space is called the mother before its cosmic activity and father-mother at the first stage of reawakening. In the Kabbalah, it is also father-mother-son. But whereas in the Eastern doctrine, these are the seventh principle of the manifested universe, or its Atma-Buddha-Manas, spirit-soul-intelligence. The triad branching off and dividing into seven cosmical and seven human principles in the Western Kabbalah of the Christian mystics, it is the triad or trinity, and with their occultists, the male-female Jehovah, Yahava. In this lies the whole difference between the esoteric and the Christian trinities, the mystics and the philosophers, the Eastern and Western pantheists, synthesize their pre-genetic triad in the pure divine abstraction. The Orthodox anthropomorphize it, Hiran Yagabra, Hari, and Shankara, the three hypostasis of the manifesting spirit of the Supreme Spirit, by which title Prativi, the earth, greets Vishnu in his first avatara, are the purely metaphysical abstract qualities of the formation, preservation, and destruction, and are the three divine avastas of that which does not perish with created things. Achuta, a name of Vishnu, whereas the Orthodox Christian separates his personal creative deity into the three personages of the Trinity and admits of no higher deity. The latter, in occultism, is the abstract triangle, with the Orthodox the perfect cube. 
The creative god or the aggregate gods are regarded by the Eastern philosopher as Brontidar's shanata, false appearances, something conceived of by reason of erroneous appearances as a material form, and explained as arising from the elusive conception of the egotistic, personal, and human soul, lower fifth principle. It is beautifully expressed in a revised translation in Fitzward Hall's notes to Wilson's translation of the Vishnu Purana, that Brahma, in its totality, has essentially the aspect of Prakriti, both evolved and unevolved, Mula Prakriti, and also the aspect of spirit and the aspect of time. Spirit, O twice born, is the leading aspect of the supreme Brahma. The next is a twofold aspect. Prakriti both evolved and unevolved, and time is the last. Kronos is shown in the Orphic Theogony also as being a generated god or agent. At this stage of the reawakening of the universe, the sacred symbolism represents it as a perfect circle with the point, root, in the center. This sign was universal, therefore we find it in the Kabbalah also. The Western Kabbalah, however, now in the hands of Christian mystics, ignores it altogether, though it is plainly shown in the Zohar. These sectarians begin at the end and give as the symbol of pregenetic cosmos, the circle with the cross, calling it the union of the rose and cross, the great mystery of occult generation, from whence the name Rosicrucian, Rose Cross, this may be seen from one of the most important and best known of their symbols, one which has never been hitherto understood even by modern mystics. It is that of the pelican tearing open its breast to feed its seven little ones, the real creed of the brothers of the rosy cross and a direct outcome from the Eastern secret doctrine. Brahman, neuter, is called Kalahamsa, meaning, as explained by Western Orientalists, the eternal swan, or goose, and so is Brahma, the creator. A great mistake is thus brought under notice. It is Brahman, neuter, which ought to be referred to as Hamsavahana, that which uses the swan as its vehicle, and not Brahma, the creator, who is the real Kalahamsa. While Brahman, neuter, is Hamsa, and Ahamsa, as will be explained in the commentaries. Let it be understood that the terms Brahma and Para-Brahman are not used here because they belong to our esoteric nomenclature, but simply because they are more familiar to the students in the West. Both are the perfect equivalents of our one, three, and seven-voweled terms, which stand for one-all and the one-all-in-all. Such are the basic conceptions on which the secret doctrine rests. It would not be in place here to enter upon any defense or proof of their inherent reasonableness, nor can I pause to show how they are, in fact, contained, though too often under a misleading guise in every system of thought or philosophy worthy of the name. Once that, the reader has gained a clear comprehension of them and realized the light which they throw on every problem of life, they will need no further justification in his eyes, because their truth will be to him as evident as the sun in heaven.
I pass on, therefore, to the subject matter of the stanzas as given in this volume, adding a skeleton outline of them in the hope of thereby rendering the task of the student more easy by placing before him in a few words the general conception therein explained. The history of the cosmic evolution, as traced in the stanzas, is so to say the abstract algebraical formulation of that evolution. Hence, the student must not expect to find there an account of all the stages and transformations which intervene between the first beginnings of universal evolution and our present state. To give such an account would be as impossible as it would be incomprehensible to men who cannot grasp the nature of even the plane of existence next to that to which, for the moment, their consciousness is limited. The stanzas, therefore, give an abstract formula which can be applied, mutatis mutandis, to all evolution, to that of our tiny earth, to that of the chain of planets of which that earth forms one, to the solar universe, to that which chain belongs, and so on in an ascending scale till the mind reels and is exhausted in the effort. The seven stanzas given in this volume represent the seven terms of the abstract formula. They refer to and describe the seven great stages of the evolutionary process, which are spoken of in the Puranas as the seven creations and in the Bible as the days of creation. Stanza 1 describes the state of one all during pralaya before the first flutter of reawakening manifestation. A moment's thought shows that such a state can only be symbolized. To describe it is impossible. Nor can it be symbolized except in negatives. For since it is the state of absoluteness per se, it can possess none of those specific attributes which serve us to describe objects in positive terms. Hence, that state can only be suggested by the negatives of all those most abstract attributes which men feel rather than conceive as the remotest limits attainable by their power of conception. Stanza 2 describes a stage which, to a Western mind, is so nearly identical with that mentioned in Stanza 1 that to express the idea of its difference would require a treatise in itself. Hence, it must be left to the intuition and the higher faculties of the reader to grasp. As far as he can, the meaning of the allegorical phrase is used. Indeed, it must be remembered that all these stanzas appeal to the inner faculties rather than to the ordinary comprehension of the physical brain. Stanza 3 describes the reawakening of the universe to life after Pelea. It depicts the emergence of the monads from their state of absorption within the One, the earliest and highest stage in the formation of worlds the term monad being one which may apply equally to the vastest solar system or the tiniest atom. Stanza 4 shows the differentiation of the germ of the universe into the septenary hierarchy of conscious divine powers, which are the active manifestations of the one supreme energy. They are the framers, shapers, and ultimately the creators of all the manifested universe in the only sense in which the name Creator is intelligible. They inform and guide it. They are the intelligent beings who adjust and control evolution, embodying in themselves those manifestations of the One Law, which we know as the Laws of Nature. 
Generically, they are known as the Dian Chohans, though each of the various groups has its own designation in the secret doctrine. This stage of evolution is spoken of in Hindu mythology as the creation of the gods. Stanza 5 describes the process of world formation. First, diffused cosmic matter, then the fiery whirlwind, the first stages in the formation of a nebula. This nebula condenses and, after passing through various transformations, forms a solar universe, a planetary chain, or a single planet as the case may be. Stanza 6 indicates the subsequent stages in the formation of a world and brings the evolution of such a world down to its fourth great period, corresponding to the period in which we are now living. Stanza 7 continues the history, tracing the descent of life down to the appearance of man, and thus closes the first book of the secret doctrine. The development of man from his first appearance on this earth in this round to the state in which we now find him will form the subject of Book 2. The stanzas which form the thesis of every section are given throughout in their modern translated version, as it would be worse than useless to make the subject still more difficult by introducing the archaic phraseology of the original with its puzzling style and words. Extracts are given from the Chinese, Tibetan, and Sanskrit translations of the original Senzar commentaries and glosses on the Book of Dzian, now rendered for the first time into a European language. It is almost unnecessary to state that only portions of the seven stanzas are here given. Where they were published complete, they would remain incomprehensible to all save a few high occultists. Nor is there any need to assure the reader that no more than most of the profane does the writer, or rather the humble recorder, understand these forbidden passages. To facilitate the reading and to avoid the too frequent reference to footnotes, it was thought best to blend together texts and glosses using the Sanskrit and Tibetan proper names whenever these could not be avoided, in preference to giving the originals. The more so as the said terms are all accepted synonyms, the latter only being used between a master and his chilas, or disciples. Thus, were one to translate into English using only substantives and technical terms as employed in one of the Tibetan and Senzar versions, shloka would read as follows. Thoeg in Zhigyu slept seven korlo. Zodmana's Ziba, Olniog Bosom, Conch Hog Knot, Fian Cam Knot, Lao Chohan Knot, Tenbrel Chugnia Knot, Darmaka Seized, Chen Chang Knot Become, Barnang and Sa in Novnidi, Alone Thog. Yinsin in Night of Sun Chan and Yon Grub, Parenashapana, etc., etc., this would sound like pure abracadabra. As this work is written for the instruction of students of occultism and not for the benefit of philologists, we may well avoid such foreign terms whenever it is possible to do so. The untranslatable terms alone, incomprehensible unless their meanings are explained, are left but all such terms are rendered in their Sanskrit form. Needless to remind the reader that these are, in almost every case, 
the late developments of the latter language and pertained to the fifth root race. Sanskrit, as now known, was not spoken by the Atlanteans, and most of the philosophical terms used in the systems of the India of the post-Mahabharatan period are not found in the Vedas, nor are they to be met with in the original stanzas, but only their equivalents. The reader who is not a theosophist is one more invited to regard all that follows as a fairy tale, if he likes, as best as one of the yet unproven speculations of the dreamers, and at the worst as an additional hypothesis to the many scientific hypotheses past, present, and future, some exploded and others still lingering. It is not in any sense less scientific than are many of the so-called scientific theories, and it is in every case more philosophical and probable. In view of the abundant comments and explanations required, the references to the footnotes are marked in the usual way, while the sentences to be commented upon are marked with letters. Additional matter will be found in the chapters on symbolism, which are often more full of information than the commentaries. This work I dedicate to all true theosophists, in every country and of every race, for they called it forth, and for them it was recorded. Preface to the First Edition The author, the writer rather, feels it necessary to apologize for the long delay which has occurred in the appearance of this work. It has been occasioned by ill health and the magnitude of the undertaking. Even the two volumes now issued do not complete the scheme, nor do these treat exhaustively of the subjects dealt with in them. A large quantity of material has already been prepared, dealing with the history of occultism as contained in the lives of the great adepts of the Aryan race, and showing the bearing of occult philosophy upon the conduct of life, as it is and as it ought to be. Should the present volumes meet with a favorable reception, no effort will be spared to carry out the scheme of the work in its entirety. This scheme, it must be added, was not in contemplation when the preparation of the work was first announced. As originally announced, it was intended that the secret doctrine should be an amended and enlarged version of Isis Unveiled. It was, however, soon found that the explanations which could be added to those already put before the world— in the last-named and other works dealing with esoteric science, were such as to require a different method of treatment, and consequently the present volumes do not contain, in all, twenty pages extracted from Isis Unveiled. The author does not feel it necessary to ask the indulgence of her readers and critics for the many defects of literary style and the imperfect English which may be found in these pages. She is a foreigner, and her knowledge of the language was acquired late in life. The English tongue is employed because it offers the most widely diffused medium for conveying the truths which it had become her duty to place before the world. These truths are in no sense put forward as a revelation, nor does the author claim the position of a revealer of mystic lore now made public for the first time in the world's history. For what is contained in this work is to be found scattered throughout thousands of volumes embodying the scriptures of the great Asiatic and early European religions, hidden under glyph and symbol, and hitherto left unnoticed because of this veil. 
What is now attempted is to gather the oldest tenants together and make of them one harmonious and unbroken whole. The sole advantage which the writer has over her predecessors is that she need not resort to personal speculations and theories, for this work is a partial statement of what she herself has been taught by more advanced students, supplemented in a few details only by the result of her own study and observation. The publication of many of the facts herein stated has been rendered necessary by the wild and fanciful speculations in which many theosophists and students of mysticism have indulged. During the last few years, in their endeavor, as they imagined, to work out a complete system of thought from the few facts previously communicated to them. It is needless to explain that this book is not the secret doctrine in its entirety, but a select number of fragments of its fundamental tenets, special attention being paid to some facts which have been seized upon by various writers and distorted out of all resemblance to the truth. But it is perhaps desirable to state unequivocally that the teachings, however fragmentary and incomplete, contained in these volumes do not belong to the Hindu, the Zoroastrian, the Chaldean, or the Egyptian religion, nor to Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, or Christianity exclusively. The secret doctrine is the essence of all these. Sprung from it in their origins, the various religious schemes are now made to merge back into their original element, out of which every mystery and dogma has grown, developed, and become materialized. It is more than probable that the book will be regarded by a large section of the public as a romance of the wildest kind. For who has ever heard of the book of Dizian? The writer, therefore, is fully prepared to take all the responsibility for what is contained in this work, and even to face the charge of having invented the whole of it. That it has many shortcomings, she is fully aware. All that she claims for it is that, romantic as it may seem to many, its logical coherence and consistency entitle this new genesis to rank, at any rate on a level with the working hypothesis so freely accepted by modern science. Further, it claims consideration not by reason of any appeal to dogmatic authority, but because it closely adheres to nature and follows the laws of uniformity and analogy. The aim of this work may be thus stated, to show that nature is not a fortuitous concurrence of atoms, and to assign to man his rightful place in the scheme of the universe, to rescue from degradation the archaic truths which are the basis of all religions, to uncover, to some extent, the fundamental unity from which they all spring. Finally, to show that the occult side of nature has never been approached by the science of modern civilization. If this is in any degree accomplished, the writer is content. It is written in the service of humanity, and by humanity and the future generations it must be judged. Its author recognizes no inferior court of appeal. Abuse she is accustomed to. Calumny she is daily acquainted with. At slander she smiles in silent contempt. De Minimis Non Curat Lex HPB, London, October 1888 Preface to the Third and Revised Edition 
In preparing this edition for the press, we have striven to correct minor points of detail in literary form, without touching at all more important matters. Had H.P. Blavatsky lived to issue the new edition, she would doubtless have corrected and enlarged it to a very considerable extent. That this is not done is one of the many minor losses caused by the one great loss. Awkward phrases due to imperfect knowledge of English have been corrected. Most of the quotations have been verified and exact references given. A work involving great labor, as the references in the previous editions were often very loose. A uniform system of transliteration for Sanskrit words has been adopted. Rejecting the form most favored by Western Orientalists as being misleading to the general reader, we have given to the consonants not present in our English alphabet combinations that approximately express their sound values, and we have carefully inserted quantities wherever they occur on the vowels. In a few instances, we have incorporated notes in the text, but this is been very sparingly done and only when they obviously formed part of it. We have added a copious index for the assistance of students and have bound it separately so that reference to it may be facilitated. For the great labor in this, we and all students are the debtors of Mr. A.J. Fowling. Annie Besant, G.R.S. Mead, London, 1893. Introductory. Gently to hear, kindly to judge. Shakespeare. Since the appearance of theosophical literature in England, it has become customary to call its teachings esoteric Buddhism. And having become a habit, as an old proverb based on daily experience has it, error runs down an inclined plane while truth has to laboriously climb its way up the hill. Old truisms are often the wisest. The human mind can hardly remain entirely free from bias, and decisive opinions are often formed before a thorough examination of a subject from all its aspects has been made. This is said with reference to the prevailing double mistake, a. of limiting theosophy to Buddhism, and b. of confounding the tenets of the religious philosophy preached by Gautama, the Buddha, with the doctrines broadly outlined in esoteric Buddhism. Anything more erroneous than this could hardly be imagined. It has enabled our enemies to find an effective weapon against theosophy, because, as an eminent Pali scholar very pointedly expressed it, there was in the volume named neither esotericism nor Buddhism. The esoteric truths presented in Mr. Sinnett's work ceased to be esoteric from the moment they were made public nor did the book contain the religion of Buddha, but simply a few tenets from a hitherto hidden teaching, which are now explained and supplemented by many more in the present volumes. And even the latter, though giving out many fundamental tenets from the secret doctrine of the East, raise but a small corner of the dark veil, for no one, not even the greatest living adept, would be permitted to, or could, even if he would, give out promiscuously to a mocking, unbelieving world that which has been so effectually concealed from it for eons and ages. Esoteric Buddhism was an excellent work with a very unfortunate title, 
Though it meant no more than does the title of this work, The Secret Doctrine, it proved unfortunate because people are always in the habit of judging things by their appearance rather than by their meaning, and because the error has now become so universal that even most of the fellows of the Theosophical Society have fallen victims to the same misconception. From the first, however, protests were raised by Brahmins and others against the title. And in justice to myself, I must add that esoteric Buddhism was presented to me as a completed volume, and that I was entirely unaware of the manner in which the author intended to spell the word Buddhism. This has to be laid directly at the door of those who, having been the first to bring the subject under public notice, neglected to point out the difference between Buddhism, the religious system of ethics preached by the Lord Gautama, and so named from his title of Buddha, the Enlightened, and Buddhism, from Buddha, wisdom or knowledge, Vidya, the faculty of cognizing, from the Sanskrit root Bud, to know. We theosophists of India are ourselves the real culprits, although at the time we did our best to correct the mistake. To avoid this deplorable misnomer was easy. The spelling of the word had only to be altered, and by common consent both pronounced and written Buddhism instead of Buddhism. Nor is the latter term correctly spelt and pronounced, as it ought to be called in English Buddhism, and its votaries Buddhists. This explanation is absolutely necessary at the beginning of a work like the present. The wisdom, religion, is the inheritance of all the nations the world over, in spite of the statement made in Esoteric Buddhism that two years ago, i.e. in 1883, neither I nor any other European living knew the alphabet of the science, here for the first time put into a scientific shape, etc. This error must have crept in through inadvertence. The present writer knew all that is divulged in Esoteric Buddhism and much more many years before it became her duty, in 1880, to impart a small portion of the secret doctrine to two European gentlemen, one of whom was the author of Esoteric Buddhism. And surely the present writer has the undoubted, though to her rather equivocal, privilege of being a European by birth and education. Moreover, a considerable part of the philosophy expounded by Mr. Sennett was taught in America even before Isis Unveiled was published, to two Europeans and to my colleague, Colonel H.S. Alcott. Of the three teachers the latter gentleman has had, the first was a Hungarian initiate, the second an Egyptian, the third a Hindu. As permitted, Colonel Alcott has given out some of this teaching in various ways. If the other two have not, it has been simply because they were not allowed their time for public work having not yet come. But the others it has, and the appearance of Mr. Sennett's several interesting books, is a visible proof of the fact. Moreover, it is above everything important to keep in mind that no theosophical book acquires the least additional value from pretended authority. Adai, or Adai Buddha, the One, or the First, and Supreme Wisdom, is a term used by Aryasanga and his secret treatises, and now by all the mystic northern Buddhists. It is a Sanskrit term, 
and an appellation given by the earliest Aryans to the unknown deity, the word Brahma not being found in the Vedas and the early works. It means the absolute wisdom. And Adibhuta is translated by Fitzit Ward Hall, the primeval uncreated cause of all. Aeons of untold duration must have elapsed before the epithet of Buddha was so humanized, so to speak, as to allow of the term being applied to mortals and finally appropriated to one whose unparalleled virtues and knowledge caused him to receive the title of the Buddha of Wisdom Unmoved. Bodha means the innate possession of divine intellect or understanding, Buddha, the acquirement of it by personal effects and merit, while Buddhai is the faculty of cognizing, the channel through which divine knowledge reaches the ego, the discernment of good and evil, also divine conscience, and the spiritual soul, which is the vehicle of Atma. When Buddhai absorbs our egotism, destroys it, with all its vikaras, Avalokiteshvara becomes manifested to us, and Nirvana, or Mukti, is reached. Mukti being the same as Nirvana, i.e. freedom from the trammels of Maya, or illusion. Bodhi is likewise the name of a particular state of trance condition, called Samadhi, during which the subject reaches the culmination of spiritual knowledge. Unwise are those who, in their blind and, in our age, untimely hatred of Buddhism, and by reaction of Buddhism, deny its esoteric teachings, which are those also of the Brahmins, simply because the name suggests what to them, as monotheists, are noxious doctrines, unwise is the correct term to use in their case. For in this age of crass and illogical materialism, the esoteric philosophy alone is calculated to withstand the repeated attacks on all and everything man holds most dear and sacred in his inner spiritual life. The true philosopher, the student of esoteric wisdom, entirely loses sight of personalities, dogmatic beliefs, and special religions. Moreover, esoteric philosophy reconciles all religions, strips every one of its outward human garments, and shows the root of each to be identical with that of every other great religion. It proves the necessity of a divine absolute principle in nature. It denies deity no more than it does the sun. Esoteric philosophy has never rejected God in nature, nor deity as the absolute and abstract ends. It only refuses to accept any of the gods of the so-called monotheistic religions, gods created by man in his own image and likeness, a blasphemous and sorry character of the ever-unknowable. Furthermore, the records we mean to place before the reader embrace the esoteric tenets of the whole world since the beginning of our humanity, and Buddhistic occultism occupies therein only its legitimate place, and no more. Indeed, the secret portions of the Dan or Jana, Dhyana, of Gautama's metaphysics, grand as they appear to one unacquainted with the tenets of the wisdom religion of antiquity, are but a very small portion of the whole. The Hindu reformer limited his public teachings to the purely moral and physiological aspect of the wisdom religion, to ethics and man alone. 
things unseen and incorporeal, the mysteries of being outside our terrestrial sphere, the great teacher left entirely untouched in his public lectures, reserving the hidden truths for a select circle of his erats. The latter received their initiation at the famous Saptparna cave, the Satapani and Mahavansa near Mount Bebar, the Webhara of the Pali MSS. This cave was in Rajagriha, the ancient capital of Magadha, and was the Cheta cave of Fehan, as is rightly suspected by some archaeologists. Time and human imagination made short work of the purity and philosophy of these teachings. Once that they were transplanted from the secret and sacred circle of the Arhats, during the course on their work of proselytism, into a soil less prepared for metaphysical conceptions than India. Once they were transferred into China, Japan, Siam, and Burma. How the pristine purity of these grand revelations was dealt with may be seen in studying some of the so-called esoteric Buddhist schools of antiquity in their modern garb, not only in China and other Buddhist countries in general, but even in not a few schools of Tibet, which have been left to the care of the uninitiated lamas and Mongolian innovators. Thus, the reader is asked to bear in mind the very important differences between Orthodox Buddhism, i.e. the public teachings of Gautama, the Buddha, and his esoteric Buddhism. His secret doctrine, however, differed in no wise from that of the initiated Brahmins of his day. The Buddha was a child of Aryan soil, a born Hindu, a Kshatriya, and a disciple of the twice-born, the initiated Brahmins or Devas. His teachings, therefore, could not be different from their doctrines, for the whole Buddhist reform consisted merely in giving out a portion of that which had been kept secret from every man outside the enchanted circles of the ascetics and temple initiates. Unable, owing to his pledges, to teach all that had been imparted to him, though the Buddha taught a philosophy built upon the groundwork of the true esoteric knowledge, he gave to the world only its outward material body and kept its soul for his elect. Many Chinese scholars among Orientalists have heard of the soul doctrine. None seem to have understood its real meaning and importance. That doctrine was preserved secretly, too secretly, perhaps, within the sanctuary. The mystery that shrouded its chief dogma and aspiration, nirvana, has so tried and irritated the curiosity of those scholars who have studied it that, unable to solve it logically and satisfactorily by untying its Gordian knot, they have cut it through by declaring that nirvana means absolute annihilation. Toward the end of the first quarter of this century, a distinct class of literature appeared in the world, which with every year became more defined in its tendency. Being based soi de sant on the scholarly researchers of the Sanskritists and Orientalists in general, it was considered scientific. Hindu, Egyptian, and other ancient religions, myths, and emblems were made to yield anything the symbologists wanted them to yield and thus often the rude outward form was given out in place of the inner meaning. Works most remarkable for their ingenious deductions and speculations, Circulo Vicioso, 
foregone conclusions generally taking the place of premises in the syllogisms of more than one Sanskrit and Pali scholar, appeared rapidly in succession, overflooding the libraries with dissertations on phallic and sexual worship rather than on real symbology, and each contradicting the other. This is the true reason, perhaps, why the outline of a few fundamental truths from the secret doctrine of the Archaic Ages is now permitted to see the light, after long millenniums of the most profound silence and secrecy. I say advisedly a few truths, because that which must remain unsaid could not be contained in a hundred such volumes, nor could it be imparted to the present generation of Sadducees. But even the little that is now given is better than complete silence upon these vital truths. The world of today, in its mad career towards the unknown, which the physicist is too ready to confound with the unknowable, whenever the problem eludes his grasp, is rapidly progressing on the reverse plane of, to that of spirituality. It has now become a vast arena, a true valley of discord and of eternal strife. A necropolis, wherein lied buried the highest and most holy aspirations of our spirit, soul. That soul becomes with every new generation more paralyzed and atrophied. The amiable infidels and accomplished profligates of society spoken of by Greeley care little for the revival of the dead sciences of the past, but there is a fair minority of earnest students who are entitled to learn the few truths that may be given to them now, and now much more than ten years ago when Isis Unveiled appeared or even when the later attempts to explain the mysteries of esoteric science were published. One of the greatest and perhaps the most serious objection to the correctness and reliability of the whole work will be the preliminary stanzas. How can the statements contained in them be verified? True, though a great portion of the Sanskrit, Chinese, and Mongolian works quoted in the present volumes is known to some Orientalists, Yet the chief work, that one from which the stanzas are given, is not in the possession of European libraries. The book of Zian, or Dzan, is utterly unknown to our philologists, or at any rate was never heard of them under its present name. This is, of course, a great drawback to those who follow the methods of research prescribed by official science. But to students of occultism and to every genuine occultist, this will be of little moment. The main body of the doctrines given, however, is found scattered throughout hundreds and thousands of Sanskrit MSS. Some already translated, disfigured in their interpretations, as usual, others still waiting their turn. Every scholar, therefore, has an opportunity of verifying the statements herein made, and of checking most of the quotations. A few new facts, new to the profane Orientalist only, and passages quoted from the commentaries will be found difficult to trace. Several of the teachings have also hitherto been transmitted orally, yet even these in every instance are hinted at in the almost countless volumes of Brahmanical Chinese and Tibetan temple literature. However it may be, and whatsoever is in store for the writer through malevolent criticism, one fact is quite certain. The members of several esoteric schools, 
the seed of which is beyond the Himalayas and whose ramifications may be found in China, Japan, India, Tibet, and even in Syria, and also South America, claim to have in their possession the sum total of sacred and philosophical works in MSS, and print all the works, in fact, that have ever been written in whatever language or character since the art of writing began, from the ideographic hieroglyphs down to the alphabet of Cadmus and the Devanagari. It has been constantly claimed that, ever since the destruction of the Alexandrian Library, every work of a character that might lead the profane to the ultimate discovery and comprehension of some of the mysteries of the secret science, owing to the combined efforts of the members of these brotherhoods, has been diligently searched for. It is added, moreover, by those who know, that once found all such works were destroyed, save three copies of each which were preserved and safely stored away. In India, the last of these precious manuscripts were secured and hidden during the reign of Emperor Akbar. Professor Max Muller shows that no bribes or threats of Akbar could extort the original text of the Vedas from the Brahmins, and yet boasts that European Orientalists have it. That Europe has the complete text is exceedingly doubtful, and the future may have very disagreeable surprises in store for the Orientalists. It is maintained, furthermore, that every sacred book of this kind, the text of which was not sufficiently veiled in symbolism, or which had any direct references to the ancient mysteries, was first carefully copied in cryptographic characters, such as to defy the art of the best and cleverest paleographer, and then destroyed to the last copy. During Akbar's reign, some fanatical courtiers, displeased at the emperor's sinful prying into the religions of the infidels themselves, helped the Brahmins to conceal their MSS. Such was Badoni, who had an undisguised horror of Akbar's mania for idolatrous religions. Badaoni, in his Muntakab at Tawarik, writes, As they, the Shramana and Brahmins, surpass other learned men in their treatises on morals and on physical and religious sciences, and reach a high degree in their knowledge of the future, in spiritual power and human perfection, they brought proofs based on reason and testimony, and inculcated their doctrines so firmly that no man could raise a doubt in his majesty even if mountains were to crumble to dust, or the heavens were to tear asunder. His majesty relished inquiries into the sects of these infidels, who cannot be counted, so numerous they are, and who have had no end of revealed books. This work was kept secret and was not published till the reign of Jahangir. Moreover, in all the large and wealthy lamasseries, there are subterranean crypts and cave libraries cut in the rock whenever the Gompa and Langkang are situated in the mountains. Beyond the western Zedam, in the solitary passes of Kunlun, there are several such hiding places. Along the ridge of Alton Tag, whose soil no European foot has ever trodden so far, there exists a certain hamlet, lost in a deep gorge. It is a small cluster of houses, a hamlet rather than a monastery, with a poor-looking temple in it, 
and one old lama, a hermit, living nearby to watch it. Pilgrims say that the subterranean galleries and halls under it contain a collection of books, the number of which, according to the accounts given, is too large to find room even in the British Museum. According to the same tradition, the now desolate regions of the waterless land of Tarim, a veritable wilderness in the heart of Turkestan, were in days of old covered with flourishing and wealthy cities. At present, a few verdant oases only relieve its dread solitude. One such, carpeting the sepulcher of a vast city buried under the sandy soil of the desert, belongs to no one but is often visited by Mongolians and Buddhists. The tradition also speaks of immense subterranean abodes, of large corridors filled with tiles and cylinders. It may be an idle rumor, and it may be an actual fact. All this will timely provoke a smile of doubt. But before the reader rejects the truthfulness of the reports, let him pause and reflect over the following well-known facts. The collective researches of Orientalists, and especially of late years the labors of students of comparative philology and the science of religion, have enabled them to ascertain that an incalculable number of MSS and even of printed works known to have existed are now to be no more found. They have disappeared without leaving the slightest trace behind. Were they works of no importance, they might, in the natural course of time, have been left to perish, and their very names would have been obliterated from human memory. But this is not so, for, as now ascertained, most of them contain the true keys to works still extant and now entirely incomprehensible for the greater portion of the readers, without these additional volumes of commentaries and explanations. Such, for instance, are the works of Lao Tse, the predecessor of Confucius. He is said to have written 930 books on ethics and religions, and 70 on magic, 1,000 in all. His great work, however, the Tao Te Ching, the heart of his doctrine, and the sacred scripture of the Tao Se has in it, as Stanislaus Julian shows, only about 5,000 words, hardly a dozen pages. Yet Professor Max Muller finds that the text is unintelligible without commentaries, so that M. Julian had to consult more than 60 commentators for the purpose of his translation, the earliest going back as far as the year 163 BC and not earlier, as we see. During the four centuries and a half that preceded the earliest of the commentators, there was ample time to veil the true Lao Tse doctrine from all but his initiated priests. The Japanese, among who are now to be found the most learned of the priests and followers of Lao Tse, simply laugh at the blunders and hypothesis of European Chinese scholars and tradition affirms that the commentaries to which our Western synologues have access are not the real occult records, but intentional veils, and that the true commentaries, as well as almost all the texts, have long disappeared from the eyes of the profane. Of the works of Confucius, we read, If we turn to China, we find that the religion of Confucius is founded on the Five King and the Four Shu books, in themselves of considerable extent and surrounded by voluminous commentaries, without 
which even the most learned scholars would not venture to fathom the depth of their sacred canon. But they have not fathomed it, and this is the complaint of the Confucianists, as a very learned member of that body in Paris complained in 1881. If our scholars turn to the ancient literature of the Semitic religions, to the scriptures of Chaldea, the elder sister and instructress, if not the fountainhead of the Mosaic Bible, the basis and starting point of Christianity, what do they find? To perpetuate the memory of the ancient religions of Babylon, to record the vast cycle of astronomical observations of the Chaldean Magi, to justify the tradition of their splendid and preeminently occult literature. What now remains? Only a few fragments which are said to be by Barosus. These, however, are almost valueless, even as a clue to the character of what has disappeared, for they pass through the hands of his reverence, the Bishop of Caesarea, that self-constituted censor and editor of the sacred records of other men's religions, and they doubtless to this day bear the mark of his enmity, voracious and trustworthy hand. For what is the history of this treatise on the once grand religion of Babylon? It was written in Greek for Alexander the Great by Barosus, a priest of the Temple of Belus. From the astronomical and chronological records preserved by the priests of that temple, records covering a period of 200,000 years, and is now lost. In the first century BC, Alexander Polyhistor made a series of extracts from it which are also lost. Eusebius, 270-340 AD, used these extracts in writing his Chronicon, the points of resemblance, almost of identity, between the Jewish and the Chaldean scriptures, made the latter most dangerous to Eusebius, in his role of defender and champion of the new faith, which had adopted the former scriptures and together with them an absurd chronology. Now it is pretty certain that Eusebius did not spare the Egyptian synchronistic tables of Manetho, so much so that Bunsen charges him with mutilating history most unscrupulously, and Socrates, a historian of the 5th century, and Syncellus, the vice-patriarch of Constantinople in the beginning of the 8th, denounce him as the most daring and desperate forger. It is likely, then, that he dealt more tenderly with the Chaldean records which were already menacing the new religion, so rashly accepted so that with the exception of these more than doubtful fragments, the entire Chaldean sacred literature has disappeared from the eyes of the profane as completely as the lost Atlantis. A few facts that were contained in the Barosian history are given later on, and may throw great light on the true origin of the fallen angels personified by Bel and the dragon. Turning now to the oldest specimen of Aryan literature, the Rig Veda, the student, if he strictly follows in this the data furnished by the Orientalists themselves, will find that although the Rig Veda contains only about 10,580 verses, or 1,028 hymns, yet in spite of the Brahmanas and the mass of glosses and commentaries, it is not understood correctly to this day. Why is this so? Evidently because the Brahmanas, the scholastic and oldest treatises on the primitive hymns, themselves require a key. 
which the Orientalists have failed to secure. What again do the scholars say of Buddhist literature? Do they possess it in its completeness? Assuredly not. Notwithstanding the 325 volumes of the Kanjur and Tanjur of the Northern Buddhists, each volume, we are told, weighing from four to five pounds, nothing in truth is known of real Lamaism. Yet the sacred canon is said in the Siddharma Lankara to contain 29,368,000 letters, or exclusive of treatises and commentaries, five or six times the amount of matter contained in the Bible, which, as Professor Max Muller states, rejoices in only 3,567,180 letters. Notwithstanding, then, these 325 volumes... In reality, there are 333, the Kanjur comprising 108 and the Tanjur 225 volumes. The translators, instead of supplying us with correct versions, have interwoven them with their own commentaries, for the purpose of justifying the dogmas of their several schools. Moreover, according to a tradition preserved by the Buddhist schools, both of the South and of the North, the sacred Buddhist canon comprised originally 80,000 or 84,000 tracts, but most of them were lost so that there remained but 6,000. As the professor tells his audience, lost as usual for Europeans. But who can be quite sure that they are likewise lost for Buddhists and Brahmins? Considering the reverence of the Buddhists for every line written upon Buddha and the good law, the loss of nearly 76,000 tracts does seem miraculous. Had it been vice versa, everyone acquainted with the natural course of events would subscribe to the statement that of these 76,000, 5,000, or 6,000 treatises might have been destroyed during the persecutions in and emigrations from India. But as it is well ascertained that the Buddhist Arats began their religious exodus for the purpose of propagating the new faith beyond Kashmir and the Himalayas as early as the year 300 before our era and reached China in the year 61 AD when Kashyapa, at the invitation of the Emperor Ming-Ti, went there to acquaint the Son of Heaven with the tenets of Buddhism, it does seem strange to hear the Orientalists speaking of such a loss as though it were really possible. They do not seem to allow for one moment the possibility that the text may be lost only for the West and for themselves, or that the Asiatic people should have the unparalleled boldness to keep their most sacred records out of the reach of foreigners, thus refusing to deliver them to the profanation and misuse even of races so vastly superior to themselves. Judging by the expressed regrets and numerous confessions of almost every one of the Orientalists, the public may feel sufficiently sure, a, that the students of ancient religions have indeed very few data upon which to build such final conclusions as they generally do about the old faiths, and b, that such lack of data does not in the least prevent them from dogmatizing. One would imagine that, thanks to the numerous records of the Egyptian theogony and mysteries, preserved in the classics and in a number of ancient writers, the rites and dogmas of Pharaonic Egypt, at least, ought to be well understood, better at any rate than the two abstruse philosophies and pantheism of India, of whose religion and language Europe had hardly any idea before the beginning of the present century. 
Along the Nile and on the face of the whole country, there stand to this hour yearly and daily exhumed ever-fresh relics which eloquently tell their own history. Still, it is not so. The learned Oxford philologist himself confesses the truth by saying, We see still standing the pyramids and the ruins of temples and labyrinths, their walls covered with hieroglyphic inscriptions and with the strange pictures of gods and goddesses, on rolls of papyrus which seem to defy the ravages of time. We have even fragments of what may be called the sacred books of the Egyptians. Yet though much has been deciphered in the ancient records of the mysterious race, the mainspring of the religion of Egypt and the original intention of its ceremonial worship are far from being fully disclosed to us. Here again the mysterious hieroglyphic documents remain, but the keys by which alone they become intelligible have disappeared. In fact, so little acquainted are our greatest Egyptologists with the funeral rites of the Egyptians and the outward marks of the difference of sex on the mummies that it has led to the most ludicrous mistakes. Only a year or two ago, one of this kind was discovered at Bulak, Cairo. The mummy of what was considered the wife of an unimportant pharaoh has, thanks to an inscription found on an amulet hung around its neck, turned out to be that of Sesostris, the greatest king of Egypt. Nevertheless, having found that there is a natural connection between language and religion, and that there was a common Aryan religion before the separation of the Aryan race, a common Semitic religion before the separation of the Semitic race, and a common Turanic religion before the separation of the Chinese and the other tribes belonging to the Turanian class, Having in fact discovered only three ancient centers of religion and three centers of language, and though as entirely ignorant of those primitive religions and languages as of their origin, the professor does not hesitate to declare that a truly historical basis for a scientific treatment of the principal religions of the world has been gained. A scientific treatment of a subject is no guarantee for its historical basis and with such scarcity of data on hand, no philologist, even among the most eminent, is justified in giving out his own conclusions for historical facts. No doubt the eminent Orientalist has thoroughly proved to the world's satisfaction that, according to the phonetic rules of Grimm's Law, Odin and Buddha are two different personages, quite distinct from each other, and has proved it scientifically. When, however, he takes the opportunity of saying in the same breath that Odin was worshipped as the supreme deity during a period long anterior to the age of the Veda and of Homer, he has not the slightest historical basis for it, but makes history and facts subservient to his own conclusions, which may be very scientific in the sight of Oriental scholars, but yet very wide of the mark of actual truth. The conflicting views of the various eminent philologists and orientalists, from Martin Hogg down to Professor Max Muller himself, on the subject of chronology, in the case of the Vedas, are an evident proof that the statement has no historical basis to stand upon, internal evidence being very often a jack-o'-lantern instead of a safe beacon to follow. Nor has the science of modern comparative mythology any better argument to bring forward to crush the contention of those 
learned writers who have insisted for the last century or so that there must have been fragments of a primeval revelation granted to the ancestors of the whole race of mankind, preserved in the temples of Greece and Italy. For this is what all the Eastern initiates and pandits have been proclaiming to the world from time to time. And while a prominent Singhalese priest assured the writer that it was well known that the most important tracts belonging to the Buddhist sacred canon were stored away in countries and places inaccessible to the European pandits, the late Swami Dayanand Sarasvati, the greatest Sanskritist of his day in India, assured some members of the Theosophical Society of the same fact with regard to ancient Brahmanical works. When told that Professor Max Muller had declared to the audiences of his lectures that the theory that there was a primeval preternatural revelation granted to the fathers of the human race finds but few supporters at present, the holy and learned man laughed. His answer was suggestive. If Mr. Mooks Muller, as he pronounced the name, were a Brahmin and came with me, I might take him to a gupa cave, a secret crypt, near Okni Math in the Himalayas, where he would soon find out that what crossed the Kalapani, the black waters of the ocean, from India to Europe were only the bits of rejected copies of some passages from our sacred books. There was a primeval revelation, and it still exists. Nor will it ever be lost to the world, but will reappear, though the Mikekas will, of course, have to wait. Questioned further on the point, he would say no more. This was at Meirut in 1880. No doubt the mystification played by the Brahmins upon Colonel Wilford and Sir William Jones in the last century at Calcutta was cruel, but it had been well deserved and no one was more to blame in that affair than the missionaries and Colonel Wilford himself. The former, on the testimony of Sir William Jones himself, were silly enough to maintain that the Hindus were even now almost Christians, because their Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesha, were no other than the Christian trinity. It was a good lesson. It made the Oriental scholars doubly cautious. But perchance it also made some of them too shy, and in its reaction, has caused the pendulum of foregone conclusions to swing too much the other way. For that first supply from the Brahmanical market, in answer to the demand of Colonel Wilford, has now created an evident necessity and desire in the Orientalists to declare nearly every archaic Sanskrit manuscript so modern as to give the missionaries full justification for availing themselves of their opportunity. That they do so, and to the full extent of their mental powers, is shown by the absurd attempts of late to prove that the whole Puranic story of Krishna was plagiarized by the Brahmins from the Bible. But the facts cited by the Oxford professor in his lectures concerning the now famous interpolations for the benefit, and later on to the sorrow of Colonel Wilford, do not at all interfere with the conclusions to which one who studies the secret doctrine must avoidably come. For, if the results show that neither the New nor even the Old Testament borrowed anything from the more ancient religion of the Brahmins and Buddhists, it does not follow that the Jews have not borrowed all they knew from the Chaldean records, the latter being mutilated later on by Eusebius. 
As to the Chaldeans, they assuredly got their primitive learning from the Brahmins, for Rawlinson shows an undeniably Vedic influence in the early mythology of Babylon, and Colonel Vance Kennedy has long ago justly declared that Babylonia was, from her origin, the seat of Sanskrit and Brahmin learning. But all such proofs must lose their value in the presence of the latest theory worked out by Professor Max Muller. What it is, everyone knows. The code of phonetic laws has now become a universal solvent for every identification and connection between the gods of many nations. Thus, though the mother of Mercury, Buddha, Thought, Hermes, etc., was Maya, the mother of Gautama Buddha, also Maya, and the mother of Jesus likewise Maya, illusion for Mary is Mare, the sea, the great illusion symbolically, Yet these three characters have no connection, nor can they have any since Bop has laid down his code of phonetic laws. In their effort to collect together the many skeins of unwritten history, it is a bold step for our Orientalists to take, to deny a priori everything that does not dovetail with their special conclusions. Thus, while new discoveries are daily made of great arts and sciences having existed far back in the night of time, Yet even the knowledge of writing is refused to some of the most ancient nations, and they are credited with barbarism instead of culture. Nevertheless, traces of an immense civilization, even in Central Asia, are still to be found. This civilization is undeniably prehistoric. And how can there be civilization without a literature in some form, without annals or chronicles? Common sense alone ought to supplement the broken links in the history of departed nations, the gigantic and unbroken wall of the mountains that hem in the whole tableland of Tibet, from the upper course of the river Kuan Ke down to the Karokoram Hills, witnessed a civilization during millenniums of years and should have strange secrets to tell mankind. The eastern and central portions of these regions, the Nan Chan and the Alton Tag were once upon a time covered with cities that could well be with Babylon. A whole geological period has swept over the land since those cities breathed their last, as the mounds of shifting sand and the sterile and now dead soil of the immense central plains of the basin of Tarim testify. The borderlands alone are superficially known to the traveler. Within those tablelands of sand there is water and fresh oases are found blooming there, wherein no European foot has ever yet ventured, or trodden the now treacherous soil. Among these verdant oases there are some which are entirely inaccessible even to the profane native traveler. Hurricanes may tear up the sands and sweep whole plains away. They are powerless to destroy that which is beyond their reach. Built deep in the bowels of the earth, the subterranean stores are secure, and as their entrances are concealed, there is little fear that anyone would discover them, even should several armies invade the sandy wastes where not a pool, not a bush, not a house is seen, and the mountain range forms a rugged screen round the parched flats of the dry, dry desert. But there is no need to send the reader across the desert when the same proofs of ancient civilization are found even in contemplatively populated regions of the same country. The oasis of Churchin, for instance, 
situated about 4,000 feet above the level of the river Churchindaria, is now surrounded in every direction by the ruins of archaic towns and cities. There are some 3,000 human beings represent the relics of about a hundred extinct nations and races, the very names of which are now unknown to our ethnologists. An anthropologist would feel more than embarrassed to class, divide, and subdivide them, the more so as the respective descendants of all these antediluvian races and tribes themselves know as little of their own forefathers as if they had fallen from the moon. When questioned about their origin, they reply that they know not whence their fathers had come, but had heard that their first or earliest men were ruled by great genii of these deserts. This may be put down to ignorance and superstition, yet, in the view of the teachings of the secret doctrine, the answer may be based upon primeval tradition. Alone the tribe of Khurizan claims to have come from what is now known as Afghanistan long before the days of Alexander, and brings legendary lore to that effect in corroboration. The Russian traveler, Colonel, now General, Provalsky, found quite close to the oasis of Chechern the ruins of two enormous cities, the oldest of which, according to the local tradition, was destroyed 3,000 years ago by a hero and giant, and the other by Mongolians in the 10th century of our era. The emplacement of the two cities is now covered, owing to shifting sands and the desert wind, with strange and heterogeneous relics, with broken china and kitchen utensils and human bones. The natives often find copper and gold coins, melted silver ingots, diamonds and turquoises, and what is the most remarkable, broken glass. Coffins of some undecaying wood or material also, within which beautifully preserved embalmed bodies are found. The male mummies are all extremely tall, powerfully built men with long wavy hair. A vault was found with twelve dead men sitting in it. Another time, in a separate coffin, a young girl was discovered by us. Her eyes were closed with golden discs, and the jaws held firm by a golden circlet running from under the chin across the top of the head. Clad in a narrow woolen garment, her bosom was covered with golden stars, the feet being left naked. To this, the famous traveler adds that all along their way on the river Churchin, they heard legends about 23 towns buried ages ago by the shifting sands of the deserts. The same tradition exists on the Lobnar and in the oasis of Kurnia. The traces of such civilization and these and like traditions give us the right to credit other legendary lore, warranted by well-educated and learned natives of India and Mongolia who speak of immense libraries reclaimed from the sand, together with various relics of ancient magic lore, which have all been safely stowed away. To recapitulate, the secret doctrine was the universally diffused religion of the ancient and prehistoric world. Proofs of its diffusion, authentic records of its history, a complete chain of documents showing its character and presence in every land, together with the teaching of all its great adepts, exist to this day in the secret crypts of libraries belonging to the occult fraternity. This statement is rendered more credible by a consideration of the following facts. The tradition of the thousands of ancient parchments, saved when the Alexandrian library was destroyed, 
the thousands of Sanskrit words which disappeared in India in the reign of Akbar, the universal tradition in China and Japan that the true ancient texts with the commentaries, which alone make them comprehensible, amounting to many thousands of volumes, have long passed out of the reach of profane hands. The disappearance of the vast sacred and occult literature of Babylon, the loss of those keys which alone could solve the thousand riddles of the Egyptian hieroglyphic records. The tradition in India that the real secret commentaries which alone make the Vedas intelligible, though no longer visible to profane eyes, still remain for the initiate, hidden in secret caves and crypts, and an identical belief among the Buddhists with regard to their secret books. The occultists assert that all these exist, safe from Western spoilating hands. To reappear in some more enlightened age, for which, in the words of the late Zwami Dayanand Saravati, the Malakakas, outcasts, savages, those beyond the pale of Aryan civilization, will have to wait. For it is not the fault of the initiates that these documents are now lost to the profane nor was it their policy dictated by selfishness or any desire to monopolize the life-giving sacred lore. There were portions of the secret science that for incalculable ages had to remain concealed from the profane gaze, but this was because the imparting to the unprepared multitude secrets of such tremendous importance was equivalent to giving a child a lighted candle in a powder magazine. The answer to a question which has frequently arisen in the minds of students when meeting with statements such as this may well be outlined here. We can understand, they say, the necessity for concealing from the herd such secrets as the Vril, or the rock-destroying force discovered by J.W. Keeley of Philadelphia, but we cannot understand how any danger could arise from the revelation of such a purely philosophical doctrine for instance, as the evolution of the planetary chains. The danger was that such doctrines as the planetary chain, or the seven races, at once give a clue to the sevenfold nature of man, for each principle is correlated to a plane, a planet, and a race, and the human principles are, on every plane, correlated to sevenfold occult forces, those of the higher planes being of tremendous power so that any septenary division at once gives a clue to tremendous occult powers, the abuse of which would cause incalculable evil to humanity, a clue which is perhaps no clue to the present generation, especially to Westerns, protected as they are by their very blindness and ignorant materialistic disbelief in the occult, but a clue which would, nevertheless, have been very real in the early centuries of the Christian era to people fully convinced of the reality of occultism and entering a cycle of degradation which made them rife for abuse of occult powers and sorcery of the worst description. The documents were concealed, it is true, but the knowledge itself and its actual existence was never made a secret of by the hierophants of the temples, wherein the mysteries have ever been made a discipline and stimulus to virtue. This is very old news, and was repeatedly made known by the great adepts, from Pythagoras and Plato down to the Neoplatonists. It was the new religion of the Nazarenes that wrought a change for the worse in the policy of centuries. Moreover, there is a well-known fact, a very curious one, 
corroborated to the writer by a reverend gentleman attached for years to a Russian embassy, that there are several documents in the St. Petersburg Imperial Libraries to show that, even so late as the days when Freemasonry and secret societies of mystics flourished without hindrance in Russia, namely at the end of the last and beginning of the present century, more than one Russian mystic traveled to Tibet via the Ural Mountains in search of knowledge and initiation in the unknown crypts of Central Asia. And more than one returned years later with a rich store of information such as could never have been given him anywhere in Europe. Several cases could be cited and well-known names brought forward, but for the fact that such publicity might annoy the surviving relatives of the late initiatives referred to. <clears throat> Several cases could be cited and well-known names brought forward, but for the fact that such publicity might annoy the surviving relatives of the late initiates referred to. Let anyone look over the annals and history of Freemasonry in the archives of the Russian metropolis, and he will assure himself of the fact above stated. This is corroboration of what has been stated many times before, unfortunately, too indiscreetly. Instead of benefiting humanity, the virulent changes of deliberate invention and imposture with a purpose, hurled at those who asserted a veritable, even if a little-known fact, have only generated bad karma for the slanderers. But now the mischief is done, and truth should no longer be denied, whatever the consequences. Is theosophy a new religion, we are asked? By no means. It is not a religion, nor is its philosophy new. For as already stated, it is as old as thinking man. Its tenets are now not published for the first time, but have been cautiously given out to and taught by more than one European initiate, especially by the late Ragon. More than one great scholar has stated that there never was a religious founder, whether Aryan, Semitic, or Turanian, who had invented a new religion or revealed a new truth. These founders were all transmitters, not original teachers. They were the authors of new forms and interpretations, while the truths upon which their teachings were based were old as mankind. Thus, out of the many truths revealed orally to man in the beginning, preserved and perpetuated in the Aditya of the temples through initiation, during the mysteries and by personal transmission, they selected one or more such grand verities, actualities visible only to the eye of the real sage and seer, and revealed them to the masses. Thus, every nation received in its turn some of the said truths. Under the veil of its own local and special symbolism, which, as time went on, developed into a more or less philosophical cultus, a pantheon in mythical disguise. Therefore is Confucius, a very ancient legislator in historical chronology, though a very modern sage in the world's history, shown by Dr. Legge, to be emphatically a transmitter, not a maker. As he himself says, I only hand on. I cannot create new things. I believe in the ancients, and therefore I love them. The writer loves them too, and therefore believes in these ancients, and the modern heirs to their wisdom. And believing in both, she now transmits that which she has received and learnt herself, to all those who will accept it. 
As to those who may reject her testimony, the great majority, she will bear them no malice, for they will be as right in their way of denying as she is right in hers in affirming, since they look at truth from two entirely different standpoints. Agreeably with the rules of critical scholarship, the Orientalist has to reject a priori whatever evidence he cannot fully verify for himself. And how can a Western scholar accept on hearsay that which he knows nothing about? Indeed, that which is given in these volumes is selected from oral as much as from written teachings. The first installment of the esoteric doctrines is based upon stanzas, which are the records of a people unknown to ethnology. They are written, it is claimed, in a tongue absent from the nomenclature of languages and dialects with which philosophy is acquainted, are said to emanate from a source repudiated by science, to wit, occultism, and finally they are offered through an agency, incessantly discredited before the world by all those who hate unwelcome truths, or have some special hobby of their own to defend. Therefore, the rejection of these teachings may be expected, and must be expected beforehand. No one styling himself a scholar in whatever department of exact science will permit himself to regard these teachings seriously. They will be derided and rejected a priori in this century, but only in this one. For the 20th century of our era, scholars will begin to recognize that the secret doctrine has neither been invented nor exaggerated, but on the contrary, simply outlined. And finally, that the teachings antedate the Vedas. There is no pretension to prophecy, but simply a statement based on the knowledge of facts. Every century, an attempt is being made to show the world that occultism is no vain superstition. Once the door is permitted to remain a little ajar, it will be opened wider with every new century. The times are ripe for a more serious knowledge than hitherto permitted though still, even now, very limited. For have not even the Vedas been derided, rejected, and called a modern forgery, even so recently as fifty years ago? Was not Sanskrit proclaimed at one time the progeny of, and a dialect derived from, the Greek, according to Lempierre and other scholars? About 1820, as Professor Max Muller tells us, the sacred books of the Brahmins, of the Magians, and of the Buddhists were all but unknown, their very existence was doubted, and there was not a single scholar who could have translated a line of the Veda, of the Zendavesta, of the Buddhist Tripitaka, and now the Vedas are proved to be the work of the highest antiquity, whose preservation amounts almost to a marvel. The same will be said of the secret archaic doctrine when undeniable proofs are given of its existence and records. But it will be centuries before much more is given from it. Speaking of the keys to the zodiacal mysteries as being almost lost to the world, it was remarked by the writer some ten years ago in Isis Unveiled that the said key must be turned seven times before the whole system is divulged. We will give it but one turn, and thereby allow the profane one glimpse into the mystery. Happy he who understands the whole. The same may be said of the whole esoteric system. One turn of the key, and no more, was given in Isis Unveiled. 
Much more is explained in these volumes. In those days, the writer hardly knew the language in which the work was written, and the disclosure of many things, freely spoken about now, was forbidden. In century the 20th, some disciple more informed and far better fitted may be sent by the masters of wisdom to give final and irrefutable proofs that there exists a science called Gupta Vidya, and that like the once mysterious sources of the Nile, the source of all religions and philosophies now made known to the world has been for many ages forgotten and lost to men, but it is at last found. Such a work as this has to be introduced with no simple preface, but with a volume, rather, one that would give facts, not mere disquisitions, since the secret doctrine is not a treatise or a series of vague theories, but contains all that can be given out to the world in this century. It would be worse than useless to publish in these pages even those portions of the esoteric teachings that have now escaped from confinement, unless the genuineness and authenticity, or at any rate the probability, of the existence of such teachings were first established. Such statements as now will be made have to be shown as warranted by various authorities, such as ancient philosophers, classical writers, and even certain learned church fathers, some of who knew these doctrines because they had studied them, had seen and read works written upon them, and some of whom had even been personally initiated into the ancient mysteries, during the performance of which the arcane doctrines were allegorically enacted. The writer will have to give historical and trustworthy names, and to cite well-known authors, ancient and modern, of recognized ability, good judgment, and truthfulness, as also to name some of the famous proficients in the secret arts and science, together with the mysteries of the latter, as they are divulged, or rather, partially presented before the public in their strange archaic form. How is this to be done? What is the best way for achieving such an object? Has been the ever-recurring question. To make our plan clear, an illustration may be attempted. When a tourist, coming from a well-explored country, suddenly reaches the borderland of a terra incognita, Hedged in and shut out from view by a very formidable barrier of impassable rocks, he may still refuse to acknowledge himself baffled in his exploratory plans. Ingress beyond is forbidden. But if he cannot visit the mysterious region personally, he may still find a means of examining it from as short a distance as can be arrived at. Helped by his knowledge of the landscapes left behind, he can get a general and pretty correct idea of the transmural view, if he will only climb to the loftiest summit of the altitudes in front of him. Once there, he can gaze at it at his leisure, comparing that which he dimly perceives with that which he has just left below, now that he is, thanks to his own efforts, beyond the line of the mists and the cloud-capped cliffs. Such a point of preliminary observation cannot in these two volumes be offered to those who would like to get a more correct understanding of the mysteries of the pre-archaic periods given in the texts. But if the reader has patience and will glance at the present state of beliefs and creeds in Europe, 
Compare and check it with what is known to history of the ages directly preceding and following the Christian era, then he will find all this in a future volume of the present work. In the latter volume, a brief recapitulation will be made of all the principal adepts known to history, and the downfall of the mysteries will be described, after which began the disappearance and the systematic and final elimination from the memory of men of the real nature of initiation and the sacred science. From that time, its teachings became a cult, and magic sailed but too often under the venerable but frequently misleading name of hermetic philosophy. As real occultism has been prevalent among the mystics during the centuries that preceded our era, so magic, or rather sorcery, with its occult arts, followed the beginning of Christianity. However great and zealous and the fanatical efforts during these early centuries to obliterate every trace of the mental and intellectual labor of the pagans, they were a failure. But the same spirit of the dark demon of bigotry and intolerance has ever since systematically perverted every bright page written in the pre-Christian periods. Even history and her uncertain records has preserved enough of that which has survived to throw an impartial light upon the whole. Let then the reader tarry a little while with the writer on the spot of observation selected. He is asked to give all his attention to that millennium of the pre-Christian and the post-Christian periods, divided by the year one of the Nativity. This event, whether historically correct or not, has nevertheless been made to serve as a first signal for the erection of manifold bulwarks against any possible return of, or even a glimpse into, the hated religions of the past. Hated and dreaded because throwing such a vivid light on the novel and intentionally veiled interpretation of what is now known as the New Dispensation. However superhuman the efforts of the early Christian fathers to obliterate the secret doctrine from the very memory of man, they all failed. Truth can never be killed, hence the failure to sweep away entirely from the face of the earth every vestige of that ancient wisdom, and to shackle and gag every witness who testified to it. Let one only think of the thousands, perhaps millions, of MSS burnt of monuments with their two indiscreet inscriptions and pictorial symbols pulverized to dust, of the bands of early hermits and ascetics roaming around among the ruined cities of Upper and Lower Egypt, in desert and mountain, valley and highland, seeking for and eager to destroy every obelisk and pillar, scroll or parchment they could lay their hands on, if only it bore the symbol of the Tao, or any other sign borrowed and appropriated by the new faith. And he will see plainly how it is that so little has remained of the records of the past. Verily, the fiendish spirit of fanaticism of early and medieval Christianity and of Islam has loved from the first to dwell in darkness and ignorance, and both have made the sun like blood, the earth a tomb, the tomb a hell, and hell itself a murkier gloom. Both creeds have won their proselytes at this point of the sword. Both have built their churches on heaven-kissing hecatombs of human victims. Over the gateway of century one of our era, the ominous words, the karma of Israel, fatally glowed. Over the portals of our own, 
the future seer may discern other words that will point to the karma for cunningly made-up history, for events purposely perverted, and for great characters slandered by posterity, mangled out of recognition between the two cars of Jagannatha, bigotry, and materialism. One accepting too much, the other denying all. Wise is he who holds the golden midpoint, who believes in the eternal justice of things. Says Fazi Diwan, the witness to the wonderful speeches of a free thinker who belongs to a thousand sects. In the assembly of the day of resurrection, when past things shall be forgiven, the sins of the Kaaba will be forgiven for the sake of the dust of Christian churches. To this, Professor Max Muller replies, the sins of Islam are as worthless as the dust of Christianity. On the day of resurrection, both Mohammedans and Christians will see the vanity of the religious doctrines. Men fight about religion on earth. In heaven they shall find out that there is only one true religion, the worship of God's Spirit. In other words, there is no religion or law higher than truth. Satyat Nasti Paro Dharma The motto of the Maharaja of Benares Adopted by the Theosophical Society as already said in the preface, the secret doctrine is not a version of Isis Unveiled as originally intended. It is rather a volume explanatory of the latter, and though entirely independent of the earlier work, an indispensable corollary to it. Much of what was in the former work could hardly be understood by theosophists in those days. The secret doctrine will now throw light on many a problem left unsolved in the first work especially on the opening pages, which have never been understood. As it was concerned simply with the philosophies within historical times and the respective symbolism of the fallen nations, only a hurried glance could be thrown at the panorama of occultism in the two volumes of Isis. In the present work, Detailed Cosmogony and the Evolution of the Four Races that Preceded Our Fifth Race, Humanity Are Given, and now two large volumes explain that which was stated only on the first page of Isis Unveiled Alone, and in a few allusions scattered hither and thither throughout that work. Nor can the vast catalogue of the archaic sciences be attempted in the present volumes, before we have disposed of such tremendous problems as cosmic and planetary evolution, and the gradual development of the mysterious humanities and races that preceded our Adamic humanity. Therefore, the present attempt to elucidate some mysteries of the esoteric philosophy has, in truth, nothing to do with the earlier work. The writer must be allowed to illustrate what is said by an instance. Volume 1 of Isis begins with a reference to an old book so very old that our modern antiquarians might ponder over its pages an indefinite time, and still not quite agree as to the nature of the fabric upon which it is written. It is the only original copy now in existence, the most ancient Hebrew document on occult learning. The Sipra Zenuta was compiled from it, and that at a time when the former was already considered in the light of a literary relic. One of its illustrations represents the divine essence emanating from Adam, like a luminous arc proceeding to form a circle. 
and then, having attained the highest point of its circumference, the ineffable glory bends back again and returns to earth, bringing a higher type of humanity in its vortex. As it approaches nearer and nearer to our planet, the emanation becomes more and more shadowy until upon touching the ground, it is as black as night. This very old book is the original work from which the many volumes of QT were compiled. Not only the latter and the Sifra Zeniuta, but even the Sefer Yetzirah, the work attributed by the Hebrew Kabbalist to their patriarch Abraham. The Shu King, China's primitive Bible, the sacred volumes of the Egyptian Thoth Hermes, the Puranas in India, the Chaldean Book of Numbers, and the Pentateuch itself are all derived from that one small parent volume. Tradition says that it was taken down in Senzar, the secret sacerdotal tongue, from the words of divine beings, who dictated it to the sons of light in Central Asia at the very beginning of our fifth race. For there was a time when its language, the Senzar, was known to the initiates of every nation, when the forefathers of the Toltec understood it as easy as the inhabitants of the lost Atlantis, who inherited it in their turn from the sages of the third race, the Manushis, who learnt it direct from the devas of the second and the first races. The illustration spoke of in Isis relates to the evolution of these races, and of our fourth and fifth race, humanity and the Vevasvada, Manvantara, or round, each round being composed of the yugas of the seven periods of humanity, four of which are now passed in our life cycle, the middle point of the fifth being nearly reached. This illustration is symbolical, as everyone can well understand, and covers the ground from the beginning. The old book, having described cosmic evolution and explained the origin of everything on Earth, including physical man, after giving the true history of the races, from the first down to our own fifth race goes no further. It stops short at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, just 4,989 years ago, at the death of Krishna, the bright sun god, the once-living hero and reformer. But there exists another book, none of its possessors regarded as very ancient, as it was born with and is only as old as the Black Age, namely about 5,000 years. In about nine years hence, the first cycle of the first five millenniums that began with the great cycle of the Kali Yuga will end. And then the last prophecy contained in that book, the first volume of the prophetic record for the Black Age, will be accomplished. We have not long to wait, and many of us will witness the dawn of the new cycle, at the end of which not a few accounts will be settled and squared between the races. Volume 2 of the Prophecies is nearly ready, having seen in preparation since the time of Buddha's grand successor, Shankaracharya. One more important point must be noticed, one that stands foremost in the series of proofs given of the existence of one primeval universal wisdom. At any rate, for Christian Kabbalists and students, the teachings were, at least, partially known to several of the fathers of the Church. It is maintained on purely historical grounds that Origen, Synesius, 
and even Clemens Alexandrinus, had themselves been initiated into the mysteries before adding to the Neoplatonism of the Alexandrian school, that of the Gnostics, under the Christian veil. More than this, some of the doctrines of the secret schools, though by no means all, were preserved in the Vatican, and have since become part and parcel of the mysteries, in the shape of disfigured additions made to the original Christian program by the Latin Church. Such is now materialized dogma of the Immaculate Conception. This accounts for the great persecution set on foot by the Roman Catholic Church against occultism, masonry, and heterodox mysticism generally. The days of Constantine were the last turning point in history, the period of the supreme struggle that ended in the Western world throttling the old religions in favor of the new one built on their bodies. From thence the vista into the far distant past, beyond the deluge and the Garden of Eden, began to be forcibly and relentlessly shut out by every fair and unfair means from the indiscreet gaze of posterity. Every issue was blocked up, every record upon which hands could be laid destroyed. Yet there remains enough, even among such mutilated records, to warrant us in saying that there is in them every requisite evidence of the actual existence of apparent doctrine. Fragments have survived geological and political cataclysms to tell the story, and every survival shows evidence that the now secret wisdom was once the one fountainhead, the ever-flowing perennial source from which were fed all the streamlets, the later religions of all nations, from the first down to the last. This period, beginning with the Buddha and Pythagoras at the one end and finishing with the Neoplatonists and Gnostics at the other, is the only focus left in history wherein coverage for the last time the bright rays of light streaming from the aeons of times gone by, unobscured by the hand of bigotry and fanaticism. This accounts for the necessity under which the writer has labored of ever explaining the facts given from the hoariest past by evidence gathered from the historical period, even at the risk of being once more charged with a lack of method and system. No other means was at hand. The public must be made acquainted with the efforts of many world adepts, of initiated poets and writers in the classics of every age to preserve in the records of humanity the knowledge at least of the existence of such a philosophy, if not actually of its tenets. The initiates of 1888 would indeed remain incomprehensible, and even a seemingly impossible myth, were not like initiates shown to have lived in every other age of history. This could be done only by naming chapter and verse where mention may be found of these great characters who were preceded and followed by a long and interminable line of other famous antediluvian and postdiluvian masters in the arts. Thus, only could it be shown, on semi-traditional and semi-historical authority, that occult knowledge and the powers it confers on man are not altogether fictions, but that they are as old as the world itself. To my judges, past and future, therefore, whether they are serious literary critics or those howling dervishes in literature who judge a book according to the popularity or unpopularity of the author's name, 
who hardly glancing at its contents, fasten like lethal bacilli on the weakest points of the body, I have nothing to say. Nor shall I condescend to notice those crack-brained slanderers, fortunately very few in number, who, hoping to attract public attention by throwing discredit on every writer whose name is better known than their own, foam and bark at their very shadows. These having first maintained for years that the doctrines taught in the Theosophist, and which culminated in esoteric Buddhism, had been all invented by the present writer, have finally turned round and denounced Isis unveiled and the rest as a plagiarism from Eliphas Levi, Paracelsus, and Mirabile Dictu, Buddhism and Brahmanism. As well charge Renan with having stole his Vie de Jesus from the Gospels, and Max Muller his sacred books of the East, or his chips from the philosophies of the Brahmins and of Gautama the Buddha. But to the public in general, and the readers of the secret doctrine, I may repeat what I have stated all along, and which I now clothe in the words of Montaigne. Gentlemen, I have here made only a nosegay of culled flowers, and have brought nothing of my own but the string that ties them. Pull the string to pieces and cut it up in shreds, if you will. As for the nosegay of facts, you will never be able to make away with these. You can only ignore them and no more. We may close with a parting word concerning this first volume. In an introduction prefacing chapters dealing chiefly with cosmogony, certain subjects brought forward may be deemed out of place, but one more consideration added to those already given has led me to touch upon them. Every reader will inevitably judge the statements made from the standpoint of his own knowledge, experience, and consciousness, basing his judgment on what he has already learnt. This fact the writer is constantly obliged to bear in mind. Hence also the frequent references in this first volume to matters which, properly speaking, belong to a later part of the work, but which could not be passed by in silence, lest the reader should look upon it as a fairy tale indeed, a fiction of some modern brain. Thus the past shall help to realize the present, and the latter to better appreciate the past. The errors of the day must be explained and swept away. Yet it is more than probable, nay, in the present case it amounts to certitude, that once more the testimony of long ages and of history will fail to impress any but the very intuitional, which is equal to saying the very few. But in this, as in all like cases, the true and faithful may console themselves by presenting the skeptical modern seduce with the mathematical proof and memorial of his obdurate abstinence and bigotry. There still exists somewhere in the archives of the French Academy the famous law of probabilities, worked out by certain mathematicians for the benefit of skeptics by an algebraic process. It runs thus, if two persons give their evidence to a fact and thus impart it to each of them, five-sixths of certitude, that fact will have then 35th, 36th of certitude, i.e. its probability will bear to its improbability the ratio of 35 to 1. If three such evidences are joined together, the certitude will become 215 over 216. 
the agreement of ten persons giving each one half of certitude will produce 1,023 over 1,024, etc., etc. The occultist may remain satisfied with such certitude and care for no more.